Oh, welcome to church. Uh, good to have you here. I want to know uh, if you speak another language, can you just put your, put your hands? Let's see how many people speak other languages. Quite a few of us, right, who speak another language. Okay, and if you speak any other language, you'll know that there's some words and phrases that are captured in one language that you just can't translate, can you? Um, so some, some words and phrases are so beautifully captured in another language that you almost just want to import that word without translating it. Um, German has a lot of those words. Anyone speak German by any chance? Ah, okay, maybe a couple. Um, German um, has great ways of forming words because they kind of become compound words. They just mash words together. So let me um, introduce you to a few German words that don't really have translations, but I wish they did, um, or English equivalents. Um, the first one is Kummerspeck. So you know when you're feeling sad and down and you just want to eat, right? Comfort food. Kummerspeck literally means grief bacon. Like, what a great word. It's the bacon you eat when you're in grief. Kummerspeck. Who hasn't ever been there? All right, how about this next one? Treppenwitz. Treppenwitz. You know when you're um, chatting to someone or maybe having an argument, and then you leave the argument and the conversation, and then you think of what to say. Yeah, that snappy comeback. Oh, if I'd only said that at that point. Treppenwitz is the German word that means that. It literally means staircase joke. It's the joke you come up with when you've hit the bottom of the staircase instead of right at the top, okay? What a great word, right? Treppenwitz. Oh, I should have said that. How about this one? My favorite one. You know when you should be doing stuff, um, but you're just feeling really slothful and lazy, and so you end up doing nothing and procrastinate? Well, the reason that happens is because of your innere Schweinehund, which literally means your inner pig dog. That's right. Your laziness is because we all have this inner pig dog in us that makes us do nothing when we should be doing something. Again, what a beautiful word that should be in English. Now, there is a German word that actually has made it to English, at least you may know of it, and it's the word schadenfreude. Who's, yeah, you've heard of the word schadenfreude? And that's why it's just imported, because there's no English equivalent. But it, it means literally damage joy. Okay, it's when you take pleasure in someone else's pain. That's schadenfreude, right? Especially when there's a bit of karma involved. So, for example, the school bully gets bullied himself. Schadenfreude, right? Or when that slacker, you know, you have a group project and there's always that one person who just does nothing, right? Well, schadenfreude is when that one person fails and everyone else passes. Right? Schadenfreude. Or schadenfreude is when the Queensland team loses the NRL grand final. Schadenfreude. Sorry. Sorry if you were going for the Broncos. Um, now, in Australia, we especially, uh, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome, you know, where we don't like people standing out above others, and so we cut down the tall poppies. And so in Australia, we especially have a lot of schadenfreude when a public figure or a political leader falls, Yeah. So when Donald Trump lost the last election, or his latest legal woes, there's a lot of schadenfreude happening, isn't there? Well, in 1 Samuel 13, the passage we read is actually the beginning of the fall of King Saul. We've been following King Saul for the last couple of weeks now. But basically from chapter 13, and within about three chapters, and probably around two years of, of actual time, this chosen first king of Israel will lose everything, and he'll be replaced. And it really is like tragedy, but tragedy in the classic sense, you know, the Greek tragedies, the Shakespearean tragedies, the fall of the hero. And yet, 
when you see King Saul fall and fade away, you can't feel schadenfreude, okay? You can't have that watching him fall. You can't rejoice uh, in his, or gloat in his fall. You won't feel that in this chapter that we just read. You won't feel it for the next two chapters. And you won't feel it when further on you really see the man Saul unravel. There's a reason why schadenfreude doesn't apply to King Saul. And the reason is this. Because when you read about King Saul, when you study him, you realize we're just like him. Like that, that's the thing about King Saul. He's such a sympathetic person because his tragedy is actually played out in smaller ways in all of our lives. And that's also the reason why we need to have a closer look at him. You see, in Romans chapter 10, the New Testament says that everything written in the past was written to instruct us. That's us today. Right? So we need to pay attention to Saul and today see the ways in which we might, by God's grace, be different. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as your word and your spirit comes to us today, that we might take heed the warnings that are in King Saul's lives, his decisions, so that by your grace, we might be different. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've got three uh, points, catalysts, consequences, command. Um, so firstly, the catalyst, uh, what sets everything off. That's what the word catalyst means. Um, the context is, uh, it's probably about a year or so since uh, Saul met Samuel. Remember, a few chapters ago, he was anointed as Israel's first king. Um, and then about a year passes. Two weeks ago, we saw how um, Saul was successful uh, in his first military campaign against the Ammonites. Right, The Ammonites on the east. But now, the threat is coming from the West, the Philistines. And you remember, though, the Philistines are important because back in chapter 9, verse 16, when God said to Samuel, you've got to make Saul king, or I'm going to appoint someone king, uh, God had said to Samuel, this man will especially be appointed king so that he can deliver my people, save my people from the Philistines. Okay, so the Philistine threat was something that he was appointed to deliver them from. But I want you to see where the Philistines are. Remember I said that they're out in the West, but actually where we pick up the story, the Philistines are right in the heart of Israel. Uh, the purple circle there is their, is their um, is a garrison, their military outpost. So uh, the Philistine cities are not on the map. They're actually out towards the West, okay, near the Mediterranean. But here you've got a garrison of them, right, military outpost at Geba, right in the heart of the, t uh, the tribe of Benjamin. So things were pretty bad. And so we've got the scene set for a confrontation, don't we, between Israel and the Philistines. But actually, the confrontation itself is just the setting for the real drama. The real drama is Saul's downfall. So let me read the next few verses again. Um, and you follow the map because I want to show you where these things are so you get an idea. Uh, if, if you can't read the writing, don't worry. Just have a look at the uh, circles. Okay, so verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel, 2,000 were with him at Michmash, where's that? That's the red circle, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin, that's the black circle. Between Michmash and Gibeah, right, was a valley. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attached, attacked the Philistine outpost at Gibeah, which I already showed you, it was the purple circle, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost and now Israel has become obnoxious. 
literally stinky, to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. That's the yellow circle on the right. Okay, so what did Jonathan do? His attack, which sort of is the catalyst, kind of sets everything off, was likely um, some sort of covert operation. So think, you know, special forces, black paint, middle of the night, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, possibly an assassination. And the result is, of course, the Philistines respond. And so Saul, what does he do? He retreats. Right, his forces were at Mikmash in the red, but he retreats in anticipation to the yellow, to Gilgal, so that he can gather more forces. And this all becomes a catalyst of what's to come. Now, before we go on, so I'll pause for a moment. Uh, Jonathan, right? Jonathan, this is the first time we meet Jonathan, uh, Saul's son. Now, we're going to have more of Jonathan next week. Uh, but he is already a big contrast to Saul. Right? Jonathan pretty much comes off as the good guy in almost every place that he appears in 1 Samuel. And Jonathan here, he does what Saul should have done. Right? That's the key about this thing. He is doing what Saul should have done. Why do I say that? Well, back in chapter 10, I'll show you the passage. Uh, this is when Samuel anoints Saul as king. Look there. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet, and I won't read those bits, but he, you know, the three signs, if you were here a few weeks ago. And after those three signs, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. Skip ahead to verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. Them is the uh, third sign, these band of prophets. And you'll be changed into a different person. And in verse 7, once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Okay, so what... Was Saul supposed to do after he was anointed as king? He was going to have three signs come across him. And then after the three signs, what was he to do? He was to go to Gibeah. He was to find the Philistine outpost. He was supposed to do something about it. All right, in chapter 10, each of the three signs get fulfilled. But guess what? Saul does nothing. He doesn't do anything at Gibeah. He doesn't do anything about the Philistines. And now we're about a, maybe a year later. A whole year, perhaps, has passed. All those three signs happen in quick succession. Nothing happens for a year. Saul is finally, his forces are at the doorstep of the outpost. But guess what? It's not Saul who does anything. Saul doesn't attack the Philistines. It's actually his son, Jonathan. Right? Jonathan becomes the catalyst. But of course, more importantly, the fact that we are looking at words that God spoke to Saul maybe a year or so ago, this means that everything has already been planned by God. See, the real catalyst is, of course, the Word of God. Right? The Word of God is the catalyst. The Word that changed Saul from a nobody searching for his dad's donkeys, remember that, to becoming the Messiah, the anointed one. The Word of God, when, when all the signs were fulfilled, actually changed Saul into a different person by the Spirit rushing upon him. The Word of God that two chapters ago we just saw empowered Saul to defeat Nahash, the evil king of the Ammonites. It was the Word of God that's a catalyst. And that's important. Because no matter how bad things will get now, God's Word had already revealed enough. Enough for Saul to act. Enough for Saul to trust this word. Enough for Saul to obey this word. Because look what the word of God had already done in his life. But of course, it's not a great start. Because Saul, as we see now, 
as we kind of saw even a few chapters ago, just hints of it. Saul is the passive one. Saul is the one who's always on a search but never finding. And Saul doesn't do anything. It took Jonathan to initiate something. All right, so that's the catalyst. Consequences. Um, so things escalate quickly, understandably. All right, I mean, World War I, if you know the, the story of World War I, that was pretty much ignited through one political assassination. So these things can happen. Um, so firstly, the Philistines. Uh, verse 5, the Philistines assemble to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. It's a bit of irony there, because God said that his people would be as numerous as sand as the seashore, but now their enemies are as numerous as sand as the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. Okay, so a massive army. And the chariots are mentioned because they had superior technology. Iron chariots, they were undefeatable in those days. Uh, but we read more in verse 17, uh, we read earlier that actually from Michmash, where they were now, they were sending out raiding parties, three raiding parties in three directions, trying to weed out and destroy rebel forces. And, and then in verse 19, we read that they took away all of Israel's blacksmiths. Israel couldn't make any weapons. So they had to fight with pitchforks and, and, and spades and all that kind of stuff. So this was going to be an unwinnable battle as the Philistines came out in force. What about Israel? What happened to them? Verse 6. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Which is why Saul, consequence for Saul, verse 7, Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. For Saul, the consequence of this was that things were looking really, really, really bad. All right? But Saul had a lifeline, remember? Saul had Samuel. You see, what Samuel had also said to Saul, which is at the end of the passage that we looked at earlier, here in the yellow, after the signs are fulfilled and your hand finds whatever it is to do, he then says to Saul, Samuel says to Saul, go down ahead of me to where? To Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. But you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you're about to do. See, now we see why Saul retreated to Gilgal after Jonathan's attack. He was actually following instructions. He knew these words. Not like he forgot these words. He remembers. And he had to wait, though. He had to wait seven days for Samuel. Because when Samuel came, Samuel would then tell him what to do. And Samuel was God's mouthpiece. And so that's what Saul did. Back in our, our chapter, verse 13, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. Now I want you to, to imagine that you are Saul. You are in leadership over a rapidly diminishing force, right? Every single day that you wait, sitting on your hands, more and more of your men desert. Remember, in verse 2, Saul had 3,000 that he mustered. Do you know in verse 15, by the end of this, he'll have 600. So you do the maths, right? 3,000 to 600. Four out of five men in his army during these days of waiting, deserted him. 
Four out of five. Imagine being Saul. Seeing these men leave one after the other. 3,000 down to 600. What, what, what would you have done? What would you have done? Or imagine this. You have invested in a startup tech company. All right, it was going well for the first few years. Going pretty well. But then trouble hits. Um, your latest product is good. It's probably the best there is in the industry, but it's just, it's not selling. It's probably overpriced, and people are opting for the cheaper options. So things aren't going well financially. But if that's not enough, then uh, there's also this conflict that's happening in the company that you know about between the founder and his board, his board of directors. In, in fact, between the founder and, and the CEO that he appointed. <laughs> but you stick by the company because you believe in the founder. He's a visionary. He's a guru. So you stick with him. But then the CEO and the board decide to sack the founder from his own company. You see, at what point do you as an investor in this startup company decide, I think it's time to bail? Yeah? You would, wouldn't you? If not earlier. See, Saul waited, didn't he? He waited until the absolute last minute. And we need to feel the weight of that. You've got to have some sympathy, don't you, for Saul? Right? He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And he offered up the burnt offering. Before we point fingers at Saul... Again, we got to get in his shoes, feel the weight of what he was going through. Like Samuel had not come. His troops were scattering. The people were already hiding. Every rational fiber in his body called him to do something. Act, lead, stop waiting for the prophet who's not going to show up. I mean, he is the king, right? And people counted on him. I hope you see why we can't have any schadenfreude at Saul's downfall. Because we would probably do the same, wouldn't we? Well, my final point, the command. At the very moment, of course, he makes the sacrifice. Verse 10, uh, literally, verse 10 says, Behold, Samuel came. All right, the bum, 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 that kind of moment in a movie. I suspect Saul, when he saw Samuel, was probably quite relieved. Verse 10 says he went up to greet Samuel, probably with a smile, probably with a hug. Oh, Samuel came, great. Hey, the sacrifice worked because God's going to come through now, right? Because you're here. But of course, the smile quickly fades because Samuel's words, his first words in this whole bit to Saul is simply this. What have you done? What have you done? The the, the same words that God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden when they'd taken the forbidden fruit. What have you done? The words that God said to Cain after Cain murdered his brother, what have you done? You can imagine Saul's face is confused. Verse 11, and Saul said, when I saw that the men were scattering and you didn't come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling in Mi'kmaq, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. I'm trying to do the right thing, Samuel. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Literally, I felt compelled. As I forced myself. I didn't want to do it, Samuel. But what, what else could I have done? I did the only thing I could do in these circumstances. I mean, how was I to know you'd appear right at the last minute? 
of the seventh day. And by the way, where were you five minutes ago when I really needed you? Right? But of course, if Saul expected sympathy and understanding from Samuel, none came. Verse 13, you have done a foolish thing. Now again, and there are commentators, Bible commentators, who actually really side with Saul and think that Samuel is just being a bit of a, a sook because, you know, he can't stand the competition of his power. Uh, because it does sound harsh, right? Right? Because Saul, as we see, if we stand in his shoes, like he did the only thing he could have done in the face of troops deserting and quaking in fear and abandoning him. He didn't have proper weapons and chariots and raiding parties. He at least wants to seek the Lord. To be foolish would have been to do nothing, right? So why are you so harsh, Samuel? Why call Saul a fool? Well, second half of what Samuel says, you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. That, that is the reason why it was foolish. Now, you see, foolishness in the Bible is not judged by whether we think something is the best course of action as dictated by our circumstances or the world. I mean, no matter how much it seems obvious or reasonable from our perspective, foolishness is to take matters into our own hands, especially when God has already spoken and commanded and promised. And just to ignore the word of God and just to take matters into our own hands, that's foolishness according to the Bible. And here's where it really hits home. You know, in Psalm 14 verse 1, it says, famous verse, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now you notice it didn't say, it doesn't say, the fool says in his mind, there is no God. So you might be thinking atheism is foolish, right? Because intellectually, it makes sense that there is a creator. But this isn't saying atheism is, or foolishness is when you say in your mind, in your intellect, there is no God. It's saying something else. It's saying foolishness is when you say in your heart, there is no God. You see, there is a kind of atheism that many of us, many Christians have. It's a heart atheism, you see. Our hearts, that's where our decisions are made. They're where our hopes and dreams are. That's where we have our ambitions, our wills, our choices, the things that drive us every single day. And this passage is saying there is a foolishness, a foolish atheism that has nothing to do with, or not primarily about, whether you believe in your head intellectually whether there is a God. It's whether or not in your heart you recognize there is a God. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, I might believe in God. I might come to church. I might call myself a Christian. But I could live out a practical atheism. It's, not, it's pretty easy, actually. And it happens more, or probably more so, it's evident, when I'm faced with difficult situations in life. Because when that happens, I go into reaction mode and I take matters into my own hands. I go on and make my decisions, how I see best, how the world sees best, and if I'm honest with myself, God doesn't really feature. I suspect that's you as well. That's heart atheism. And that's foolish. And in the end, that was Saul's downfall. You see, no matter what circumstances he was facing, no matter how many enemies, no matter how reasonable it would have been from his perspective, 
he failed to trust and obey the God whose word and whose power overrides impossible situations. I mean, did you, have you ever thought, why did Samuel and God wait until the absolute last minute when Saul's forces were down to 20% of what they were? Why did God wait till then? Why did he come earlier? Why at the very last minute, when it was absolutely clear there was nothing humanly possible for Saul to do that could have meant victory? Why would God do that? Well, if you know the Bible, you know that's what God loves to do. Right? But not because he's a sadist. It's because God doesn't want a king just to win battles. That's what the people wanted. They wanted a king to lead them so they can be our only nations to lead them in battle. No, no, no. God wanted a king not to win battles, but to win his people's hearts so that they would all trust and obey him. And how was Israel, who wanted to be like all the other nations, to be led into battle like all the how was Israel to trust and obey God as their true king Well, only when they face impossible odds? Because God shows his power when there are no natural ways of overcoming, when there's only supernatural ways of And that's why God wanted to make sure there was going to be no doubt whatsoever that he was the one who to deliver his people. But that's what God has always done. You remember when his people had no food in the desert and he provided manna from heaven. You remember when his people faced a wall, the wall of Jericho, so thick, so wide, so big, they couldn't do anything about it. So what did they do? They obeyed God, trusted him, marched around the city a few times, and the walls came tumbling down. You remember when Gideon had to reduce his fighting force down to less than 600. It was 300. And with 300 men, he completely defeated the Midian. God loves doing that because he wants to win his people's hearts. And so Saul failed because he failed to be the kind of king that would lead God's people to God, to trust and obey God. And instead, Saul was just like Israel. And because of that, his rejection was sealed. So verse 14, things move pretty quickly from now on. God would appoint instead a man after his own heart. Uh, That means a, a man that's chosen by God's heart, a man chosen by God's will, as opposed to the people's will, Saul. Now fast forward a couple of chapters, we're going to meet David. And David is that man. But I don't think I'm giving away spoilers by telling you that even David failed. And so in the end, when we go to the climax of the Bible story, in the end, it's only Jesus, isn't it? Like you think about who is the king, who is the man that perfectly showed what it was like never to take things into his own hands. Who had to wait and wait at a great cost to himself, but still did it. Trusted and obeyed God. Who is that man? That's Jesus, the son of God, the son of David. I mean, his whole life, wasn't it, was waiting and trusting and not taking. What was Jesus' temptation when Satan said, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give it to you now if you worship me now. Jesus knew that one day he would have all the kingdoms of the world. But he had to wait. He had to go through the cross and die first. Satan wanted him not to wait, shortcut that, take matters into his own hands. 
But isn't it great that Jesus didn't take matters into his own hands? Isn't it great that Jesus endured right up to and including dying for our sins on the cross? And that's why we can trust Jesus, can't we? Like if you have a God like that, who's done it himself, who endured it himself, you can trust him and you can obey him. If he's gone to the cross for you, then he has your best interests in mind. No matter the situation you find yourselves in, and this morning he is saying to you, to, you, to us, trust in me. But not just trust in me, he's actually also saying to us, wait for me. Wait for me. Because you know the Christian life is lived between the first and the second coming of Jesus, yeah? And so like Saul, we're called to wait. Wait for Jesus to come back, to make everything right and make everything new. And yeah, that wait is hard because it's been 2,000 years. And because it's been so long, it's easy to live as though Jesus isn't coming back, right? Or at least in our hearts, intellectually we believe he's coming back. But maybe in our hearts, we don't really believe it. But God's word says, if you can't wait, if you take matters into your own hands, if you don't want to trust me and obey me, that is foolishness. Let me apply it in three areas. Personal injustice. When you're hurt by others, it's understandable to take matters into your own hands, right? I mean, that's what it's instinctively what we want to do, but it's also what people will tell us to do. Hurt them back. Hurt them back. Right? You can hurt them back directly or indirectly by just being cold, right? withdrawing, gossiping about them. Other ways we can hurt them back. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know what? I'm coming back. And when I return, that's when all justice will be done. So leave that to me. You don't have to react. You don't have to defend. You don't have to take revenge. Because you can leave that to me when I come back. Instead, Jesus says to us, you can love your enemies. You can pray for your enemies. You can even forgive. Because I'm coming back. What about relationships and sex? If you're single, or if you're struggling in an unhappy marriage, or if you're same-sex attracted, it's so easy to take matters into your own hands, isn't it? I mean, the world is telling us all the time, just follow your heart. Do what makes you happy. But Jesus says, I'm coming back. Marriage and sex won't satisfy you in the way that the world promises. Singleness and celibacy is not a curse. It's actually, you know the Bible says that singleness is a foretaste of heaven. Because guess what? Even if you're married now, we'll all be single forever in eternity. And we'll be fully satisfied. See, one day all of our deepest longings for relationships will be fulfilled when I return. So you can trust me and obey me. Because I'm coming back. I know the wait is long. Have a Christian ministry. Well, if Jesus is coming back, then nothing is more urgent, is there, than for people to hear about Jesus. For God's people to grow and be disciples, so they'd be more like Jesus, and for churches to impact and witness to the world. 
And so if that's true and Jesus is coming back and those are the most important things, then obviously personally it means that you and I, whatever else we do, we've got to give of our best time and our best talents and our best treasures for that goal. In other words, that's Christian ministry. And so your studies, your career, your house, your money, your hobbies, your travel, your retirement plans, they have to take second place, at least second place, if not lower, with a more urgent task. And so I can make sacrifices, can't I, for ministry, right, in trust and obedience. It may mean full-time ministry for you, but for most of you, it probably won't mean that. But you're still going to have to make sacrifices, But you do it because you are waiting for Jesus. You know that tech company example I gave? That was actually a real tech company. It was Apple back in 1985. See, many people, um, in 1985, that was when Steve Jobs got kicked out of his own company. (laughs) Founding partners included, they bailed. And understandably bailed in 1985. Like, who wouldn't have? But now, from our perspective... That's going to look foolish. Why? Because if you had stocks in 1985, you'd be a billionaire now. And it's foolish because in 1996, the second coming happened. Well, not the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Steve Jobs when he was restored to his company. And everything turned around and Apple stocks are worth so much more now. Well, of course, the second coming of Steve Jobs is nothing compared with the second coming of Jesus. See, when Jesus returns, all of the foolish decisions that seem so wise will be shown to be really foolish. And all of the really wise decisions from God's point of view that seem so foolish now, especially in the world's eyes, will be shown to be really wise. So have you been unjustly treated? And hurt by others? Or are you so tired and weary from singleness or an unhappy marriage or unfulfilled sexual desires that you just desperately want a shortcut to happiness? Or are you regretting the cost of serving Jesus and his church at the expense of your studies or career or your leisure or your retirement? Or maybe it's not any of those examples. Maybe it's something else that makes it much easier for you to just skip trusting and obeying Jesus and just take matters into your own hands. Whatever it is, Jesus is saying to you today, wait for me. Will you wait for me? Trust me. Obey me. Wait for me. Because it will be worth it. Let's pray. Let's get ready to sing. Let's get the band up. Lord Jesus, we confess it is hard to wait for you sometimes. And we say sorry for the times when we've really taken matters into our own hands. Forgive us and empower us by your spirit to really understand your promises and take them to heart. So whatever it is that's driving us and causing us to want to just shortcut and run or take matters into our own hands or disobey you. Lord Jesus, we trust in you this morning. And we pray that you would help us. Help us to keep waiting. And we want to say Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.